Welcome to IVF Tales, a podcast hoping to make the world of fertility treatment less lonely. We want to start conversations about different fertility journeys to empower your decisions and build a community that understands. Each week we will speak to someone whose journey to having a child has taken a little bit more than a few vodka cruises. We are your hosts, Tiffany and Amy. Hey guys, um, it's Amy and Tiff here. We have put together this little bonus episode in our down week. Um, It's completely about the COVID-19 and um, IVF being classified as non-essential and therefore put on hold for some, oh, for everyone in the country, isn't it? Is it everybody in the country? Yeah, yeah. I think it's rolled out at different stages, but basically everyone now. Yeah. Um, so for this episode, we've interviewed two different women, uh, Kylie and Liv, and all of their stories are quite similar in the sense that they've all got um, low A M. I can't ever say it. A M H levels. I thought it was A H M. No, that's the that's insurance. Yeah, insurance company. Um, but yeah, so they're all feeling the pressure of time and. A couple of them have actually been told that, you know, they need to try and conceive as quickly as they can. And and now for them to be put on hold, it's a little bit of a contradicting thing for them to have to deal with. So, I mean, what what do you think about it, Tiff? Like, what do you think about everything that's going on? I think it's just another instance of medical professionals or not even medical professionals, but politicians and things not understanding. Like there's been a lot of examples of that in the media mm-hmm. in the past year but this is just another instance of you know they don't necessarily have the education to know what the effects of these decisions will have on people mm-hmm. holistically too you know like we're being told to socially distance and do all of these things for the greater good and then you know so all these decisions are being taken away from us you know like so you can't just Mm -hmm. sort of pop down to the park with your kid or meet a friend for a coffee or go and see a movie because all of those things are closed and you know not really encouraged which is fine but then if you add that on top of infertility and fertile fertility treatment and then have that taken away as well you sort of start to feel like you're losing all control of a lot of aspects of your life yeah definitely um and i think i think it yeah go (laughs) i think as well it's another instance of how we are different Mm -hmm. like nobody's telling anyone like maybe don't get pregnant during this time because we don't know how long it's going to last and what resources we will eventually need. Mm -hmm. And also we don't know the long-term effects on infants either. Yeah, pregnancy and all of these things. But Mm -hmm. once again, we're different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think um, you sent through a really good article Oh, like a week and a half ago about how this psychologist was saying that the impacts of social distancing and now having the treatment put on hold, like we can't, like, you know, a lot of people in the fertility community use things like acupuncture and things like that mm-hmm. um, to try and, you know, help their chances of falling pregnant. And we can't, like, even do that at the moment because everything's just been placed on hold. So there's none of those um, usual coping mechanisms present and, you know, um, available to to us. So 
it's really a difficult time. And I think what you said about the politicians not being completely informed is so true. It's not a holistic view. They're not, and I don't think they have the time, you know, in times like this, I think that's like interesting, but I just think, you know, classifying IVF as non-essential is just sort of a bit like a kick in the face, really. If this is affecting you, comment on our Instagram, let us know mm-hmm. how you're coping, what you're doing, yeah. talk about it. Mm-hmm. We might pop some um, links in the show notes to some organisations that might be able to help during this time too if you're struggling. Um, but, yeah, like Tiff said, if you're following us along on Instagram um, at IVF Tales Podcast, um, don't hesitate to reach out and let us know how you're feeling about this, if this is impacting on you. Okay, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Carly, well, thank you so much for joining us today on IVF Tales. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, if you just want to get us started to tell us a little bit about yourself, so who you are, like where you're located, um, and the rest of it. Yep, sure. So I'm 38. I'm a teacher assistant. I live in Melbourne uh, with my husband. He's 48 and he's a shop fitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a son who is 11 and he is from a previous marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty much us. Lovely. Um, an 11-year-old must keep you busy, really busy. <laughs> yeah, he's he's cool. He's sort of at that really independent age though. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's He's really active and sporty, so yeah, a lot of lot of our time is taken up with um yeah him going to training and sports and things like that. So. Yeah, oh that's sweet. All right, do you want to give us a bit of a brief uh, background on your fertility situation? Yep, sure. I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. No worries. It hasn't been going for that long, so it probably will be brief. So, that's okay. Um, so we've been trying for about five years on and off. Um, when I say on and off, it's because my husband goes away a lot for work, so mm-hmm. he can be away for work, you know, sort of eight weeks at a time. So mm-hmm. when you're trying to have a baby, that's really hard. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. haven't had any success. Um, so I decided to get help in about September last year I kept hearing lots of fertility ads on the radio and I thought hmm maybe I should Uh you know give them a call so yeah so we basically got booked in for our first appointment and you know the first appointment you have all your tests and things and then we went back to find out that hubby had very very low sperm count and I also had very low AMH Uh um, which I actually didn't expect anything to be wrong with me. I'm like, no, nah, I've had a baby. <laughs> Nothing yeah. will be wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so up until now we haven't really discovered that we've got any other issues so far, so just those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then hubby was sent for a couple more tests and things like blood tests, things like that. Um, yeah, so that sort of took us to the Christmas period. So clinic was closed, so we got to start our first cycle in about mid-January. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a cycle of ICSI because our fertility specialist thought that that was going to be the best option yep. for our situation. Um, unfortunately, it was unsuccessful. Uh, we did get five eggs, but by day six, we only were left with one, mm-hmm. um, which we sent away for non-invasive PGT mm-hmm. and gets me a little bit emotional. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, it came back chromosomally abnormal so mm-hmm. it wasn't suitable for transfer so mm-hmm. that was extremely gut-wrenching because yep. then we were just like oh that's it 
where, mm-hmm. you know, our first cycle's done. No, mm-hmm. We didn't even, you know, get to go to transfer or anything like that. So it sort of took me a few days to sort of gather myself. Um, and then I was sort of like, right, do you know what? The way we're going to get through this is we're just going to go straight into round two. So yeah. I just used that as a coping mechanism because I just couldn't see any other way to sort of get through it. So, yeah, so um, I just went straight into the process of accessing my super and because that can, you know, take a little bit of time. Um, so I just quickly started the process for that. Um, yeah, we just were waiting for approval and it was taking much longer than usual because um, then the coronavirus in Australia started to get really serious. So some people can be approved you know, within 24 hours, 48 hours, and mine ended up taking about 15 days. So, yeah, so then the coronavirus hit us in Australia and, yeah, that's where we're at. It just dawned on me that I was getting older. I'm like, mm, I was going to be, I'm going to be 38 in January, mm-hmm. which I'm 38 now. Yeah. And I'm like, we still haven't had one mm-hmm. and we've been trying for a really long time. How long would you say that you and your husband had yeah. been trying for? Um, yeah, so for about five years on and off, okay. yeah. So, but we have had like really salt, like solid periods of trying, mm-hmm. like where he has been home. Yeah. Um, and then there's just been, you know, some breaks in between where he's had to go interstate for work. Mm-hmm. And sort of when you reach your diagnosis, were you sort of relieved a little bit because it sort of explained everything and, and you had a bit more understanding of what was going on? Yeah, definitely. Like I always sort of in the back of my mind thought, well, I think there might be something wrong with hubby maybe mm-hmm. as I've got any kids and we just can't conceive because I just wouldn't – it wouldn't register in my brain that anything might have been wrong with me. Like yeah. I'm just like, no, I've had a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, now knowing what I know now and researching into, you know, secondary fertility and all those sorts of things, it's like, yeah, I probably yeah. shouldn't have been so blasé. Mm-hmm. but. Never mind. Yeah, I think that's something it can be, like you said before, it can be a bit of a coping mechanism as well. And But sometimes there is that little niggle in your gut, isn't there, where you're kind of like, mm, should have happened by now. Um, I know that from our story as well. We, I was the same. I was like, you know, as I think something's not right. And he was like, no, no, it's fine. So I think when you get that little gut tickle, it's kind of telling you something, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so basically we touched on it earlier. So the coronavirus has hit Australia and the um, IVF cycles all around the country have been uh, cancelled or postponed or suspended until sort of further notice. Um, when did you find out that your cycle was actually cancelled? Yep. Yeah, so I got the approval from the ATO on the 26th of March mm-hmm. and that very same day the government announced the shutdown of all elective surgery yeah so I was just absolutely shattered um so I I emailed my nurse to say oh yes I got my approval you know and then she emailed back to say you know regretfully sorry Kylie we're gonna have to postpone and we're not allowed to start any new cycles Mm -hmm. so that was pretty devastating that day that's the day I crawled into bed for two hours and cried yeah I think that's understandable (laughs) Um, so were you given any reasons for why they cancelled? Yeah, so they basically just said that they were they were following what the government was saying. Um, they could they could continue the people that were already in cycle. So the people that already started their treatment, they could still go along with those, but they wouldn't be able to start any new 
mm-hmm. um, yeah, new cycles up. No real clarification. Um, it, I think it was just all driven by what the government was saying. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Like I feel as though they've sort of just single-handedly axed an entire aspect of, you know, our health system, I suppose, you know, with fertility. I mean, how many people are doing fertility all around the country or are, you know, engaged in fertility treatment or or about to start the process and they've sort of, you know, put a handle, put put a, you know, a pin in it, um, which just... Like, you know, you were saying earlier, you've got low AMH. I can never say that for some reason, <laughs> um, which is – if would you mind just clarifying for that, just people who are listening who may not understand what that is, would you mind just explaining a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I guess I don't really know a lot myself, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's got to do with my um, number of eggs. Mm-hmm. I think does that yeah. sound right to you? Yeah, no, I think I think it's yeah, it's got to with to do with your ovarian egg reserve. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's different from diminished ovarian reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think mine was at like I think my number was about point three or something, which mm-hmm. is quite low. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that was pretty devastating in itself because I like I have read a bit about it and it says you know like um smokers and things like that can have low and I was a smoker for 21 years which I don't anymore which is good mm-hmm. so um but I was like oh you know I've really harmed my health <laughs> mm-hmm. do you feel that like are you thinking along the lines of that maybe smoking impacted on on that or um, did um you- yeah I do yep yep okay did your fertility specialist sort of explain like could it also be genetic as well or or anything like that uh, no, she didn't. Okay. She didn't really go into things like that. She was more, she was more sort of focusing on hubby than me, really. Yeah. Um, at first, when she told us, she um actually came out and said that hubby had no sperm. Okay. <laughs> so I, I sort of fell into pieces, and I said, "What do you mean? There's no sperm?" And she's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I should word myself better. Sorry, he's got very low sperm." I'm like, yes, yeah. you should probably think we speak. <laughs> There's a very big difference between low sperm and no sperm. And no sperm, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So were you given like an approximate time to recommence your treatment at all or or not really? Yeah, so in the email um, the nurse said that they were hoping to have things up and running by June and I was like, June, that's like two months away. Yeah. I was like, in the fertility world, two months is so long. Mm -hmm. Um, but she, but yeah, so I sort of fired back an email, not a rude one, but just to say, are you kidding me, June? Like mm-hmm. how, you know, how could this be? And she ended up actually calling me the next day and said, you know, um, that yeah, June is just an absolute guesstimate and that um, they will absolutely be having up things up and running as soon as they're allowed to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know. It, like it very well could be June, like we don't know, but I'm trying not to think about June. Yeah, oh, it's so hard, isn't it? It's sort of all hanging in the balance. I mean, our fertility our fertility clinic said end of April, beginning of May, and I sort of got off the phone from my fertility specialist and turned to my husband and was like, they're dreaming if they think it's going to be that early. But in the back of my yeah. mind, I'm like, please, fingers crossed, please, please, please. But, mm, yeah, it's just yeah. so hard. And then there was some good news this week where – you know how they sort of stopped, they even stopped people that were in cycle. I've, I heard some good news this week that they've, you know, let those people 
continue and they're even considering patients for you know that have medical severe medical reasons that they can start back up cycles as well so Mm -hmm. I was like oh that's good news so hopefully we're next yeah it's just it's constantly changing day by day and I mean I don't know about you but I'm finding it really hard to keep up with it so sometimes I just switch off for a few days and come back on and it's just all changed again so it's kind of hard to keep track um so if you just want to talk a little bit um, about how you felt having your can- your treatment cancelled. I mean, I know the obvious answer is extremely sad, but I know from my experience it's quite a mixture of different feelings, you know, and would you like to just walk us through that a little bit? Um, yeah. So I guess, I guess it's really hard just sort of like just sitting here. Um, you know, I've, I've actually got my treatment plan for round two like ready printed out ready to go um yeah I just got my my check today from from my um super so you know I'm I'm just I'm just sort of just sitting here waiting ready to go just ready to go pick up my medication mm-hmm. and you know let's do it yeah so it is yeah like I don't really suffer from anxiety but I feel like this process yeah being on hold has made me you know a little bit more anxious and um yeah I guess I just I feel for myself and I feel for everyone else that's waiting to start a cycle and especially older ladies as well. Like, you know, like two, three months can be detrimental for the, you know, for their mm-hmm. fertility fertility journey. Um, yeah, so I sort of, you know, I feel down sometimes, but I'm just sort of, yeah, I'm just trying to stay positive and hopeful that, you know, that we'll be able to start soon. Yeah. I think it's really important point to sort of just reiterate that fertility treatment can, a few months can make all the difference, you know, um, and particularly with people, you know, who are maybe, um, you know, have recently got a diagnosis of cancer and are wanting to, you know, sort of store their eggs, um, and you know, so they can, they can continue on with their treatment and things like that. Um, so time is literally of the essence for some people, um, engaging in fertility treatment. And like you said, two or three months can make all the difference, especially emotionally where, you're just sitting there waiting and, and you know, we're, we're socially distancing. So it's not like we can go out for cups of coffee or catching up with friends or do, or, you know, engage in our normal day-to-day life um, or even continue on with things like acupuncture. If, if that's what some people are doing to sort of help their fertility situation, we can't even really do that anymore. So I feel like sometimes you're sitting there and you just sort of think like you can just, if you're not careful, you can sort of just spiral into this place where you're just continu- continuously thinking about it. Um, you know, yeah, I don't – Absolutely. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people who go through fertility treatment, they don't understand that because it's kind of like if you can fall pregnant naturally, you don't really need to think about it, whereas when you can't, sort of it's a big mm-hmm. aspect of your life for that short period of time or for a long period of time depending on how long, you know, you're going through treatment. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you know what? I've had some really insensitive comments from people during this coronavirus period saying, You're joking. You know, "Why would I even want? Why would I even want to start a cycle now anyway?" and things oh. like that. So I just sort of shut down those comments, and I just think, well, clearly you don't know how long we've been trying and how much we want to have a baby. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, so you know, this situation's hard enough, and you know, comments like that are not welcome. 
yes, I agree 100%. And I think if I get told one more time that there's going to be a baby boom after this coronavirus, I think I'm going to drive my car into a pole because I can't handle hearing about it anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. um, So if you could speak to the government so and tell them and explain to them why is fertility treatment an essential service, like what what would you say to them if you could speak to them now? Yeah, I thought a bit about this. Um, I think shutting down for a couple of months could just really affect some people's journey, especially for, as we were saying, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think IVF is really hard to, you know, go through anyway. And now, you know, we can't even access it. It's just, you know, it's really, really heartbreaking, to be honest. Yeah. And I just, I just hope they consider... Um, IVF is one of the first essential services that they start back up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just really want them to consider, you know, couples and singles that are desperate for a baby and, you mm-hmm. know, to start a family. Um, that, yeah, that we are an essential service and we would really like to be able to continue our journeys ASAP. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Um, yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, like listening to podcasts like yours and um, even accessing IVF support groups and things, like mm-hmm. I think they're so important for mental health and they're definitely, you know, they've definitely helped me, um, you know, getting through this difficult time. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so definitely, you know, reaching out and getting that support that you need. Um, I think it's really important. Yeah. So thank you for hearing me out today. Oh, no worries. Thank you for joining us. Lovely. So thank you so much for joining us on IVF Tales today, Liv. No problem. Thanks for having me. Um, Would you like to just get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself, so who you are and where you're located? Yeah, sure. Um, So my name's Olivia. Um, I am um, 40 um, I just turned 40 in March. Um, I live in Geelong, Victoria, mm-hmm. um, and I am married now to my husband, Nick. Um, we have, well, I have two stepsons um, from Nick's first marriage, um, and I work, I travel from Geelong to Melbourne for work. I'm a social worker in Melbourne. Oh, okay, cool. Um, that must be a pretty intense job to be, you know, um doing with IVF as It's well. an extremely intense job to be doing with IVF. Yeah. I'm lucky that I have had um, a very understanding employer throughout my IVF journey. Yeah, that's really good. Um, okay, so do you just want to give us a bit of a brief background on your fertility situation? Uh, yep. So um, Nick and I, um, Nick and I um, met in... 2015 um and i think our our relationship for us and our age progressed quite quickly so by um march 2017 we had had um quite a major death in our family nick's brother-in-law passed away unexpectedly and i think for us it kind of kick-started us into thinking what why were we waiting you know i think that we knew that we wanted to have a baby and had kind of at that stage had been planning to get married and do all of those things first and um, I think that the death of Nick's brother-in-law kind of prompted us to go what are we waiting for Mm -hmm. Um, so we started to try and 
um, conceived naturally in March 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought, for us, I suppose, we, we just didn't know how long it would take and, I, and there had been no fertility issues in our immediate family. So um, we were happy to find out um, in October of 2017 that we had fallen pregnant naturally. Um, we, I think, you know, falling pregnant in October was a shock to us. I didn't actually think I was pregnant because I had um, started spotting when I was due for my period. Um, and then my sister-in-law mentioned to me that, you know, oh, could you be pregnant and spoke to me about implantation bleeding. And because this was the first time I'd ever tried to get pregnant, I'd never heard of implantation bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of didn't think about anything about it for a day or two and, um, my bleeding had stopped and I was like, I'll do a test and just left it in the bathroom and come back 10 minutes later and we were surprised to see that it was positive. Um, so, you know, we were obviously super excited. First time I'd ever been pregnant. Um, you know, booked in, went and had blood tests with the doctor. All of those were fine. And then a week after that, I started bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, at what have been what would have been for us week six, we went and had a scan um, and my levels tested again. And I had had, um, they believe, either a miscarriage or a chemical pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I guess for, for me, that was my first experience of being pregnant. Um, after that, we then um, continued to try naturally to get pregnant um, without, we weren't really doing ovulation testing or anything like that. We just kept trying naturally um, up until sort of about January of 2018. And um, because we weren't getting pregnant, we made the decision to go and discuss that with our GP. Um, just given our ages at the time, you know, we were both um, turning 38 um, and obviously concerned about age. Um, so we went um, and the GP who referred us to a fertility specialist and I had my first appointment with a fertility specialist in February 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, as you do when you first go and see a fertility specialist, you have a barrage of tests done. Um, so we had all of those tests done and were told that um, the specialist didn't really see too many reasons as to why we weren't able to get pregnant on our own, but everything looked really good. Um, and were sent away for three months to continue trying. Um, after those three months of trying, we didn't get pregnant. We went back to the fertility specialist, um, and I had some more tests then, um, and was told, which was a surprise to me, that I had um, quite a, a low egg reserve for my age. Um, and I think, you know, at the time I kind of questioned that was really surprised because, you know, three months prior there was no discussion of me having low egg reserve for my age. Um, so at that point we were told that our best chance of getting pregnant was via IVF. Um, and I was also put on the public wait list to have a laparoscopy done just to make sure that there was nothing else going on. Um, so we then moved quite quickly forward to our first round of IVF in the August of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I think I jumped on board with IVF much quicker than my husband did. I think that he really um, he really struggled with the idea that we couldn't conceive naturally. Um, mm-hmm. It took him 
um, a little bit longer than me to wrap his head around the fact that this is this is how we were most likely to get pregnant at this point. And I actually think it probably took him at least through the whole first round to realise that this was probably going to be life for us for a while. Um, I I think that because I was in a space where I always knew I wanted to have a baby and I was determined to have a baby, I was a bit more like, let's just jump in and get this done, um, which I seem to be about most things. Um, so we jumped into our first round of IVF. Um, again, you, I think, you know, until you've done IVF, you just have no idea what to expect um, until you start around. Um, we had no um, no male factors um, for our infertility. It was all about my egg reserve. So um, I think that I went into this expecting that, that it would be successful and we'd do quite well and we'd get lots of eggs and things and um, that isn't necessarily, you know, now after about to do our seven rounds, it's not necessarily the case. Um, so we, um, I went in and met with a nurse and I think the, um, I think the thing that scared me most, funnily enough, about doing IVF was the fact that I had to give myself injections. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm scared of injections anyway, without having to give them to myself. Um, so I struggled with the idea of that. Um, I feel like I really built myself up to be able to do it and then went in and met with a fertility nurse who showed me how to use the injections and I just cried the whole time. Um, just petrified of having to do that myself. Um, and funnily enough, you know, I, I that was the only bit of IVF I was really scared of. I wasn't bothered about having to have anaesthetic or egg retrieval. Um, I think I'm quite curious about that stuff, so I did the things like YouTube, how they do egg retrieval and things like that. And surprisingly, none of that freaked me out. Um, so we went through um, an antagonist cycle um, and we, um, from memory, my uh, medications for that were Metapure and um, Orgalutran. So um, I went through about 10 days of injections for that um, and was surprised to find out that, that I didn't have a lot of follicles. Um, so when we did our first egg retrieval, we, we managed to get um, seven eggs out. Um, I think that, you know, like I'd read a bit about IVF prior to that, so I was just expecting some huge number of eggs and that, you know, that's obviously not the norm. Um, so we got seven eggs out first round um, and those eggs, turned out to be not fabulous quality eggs. So we only had one of those eggs left by day three. Um, So we did a fresh transfer at day three that was not successful. Um, We took a little bit of time after that just to wrap our heads around that. And um, I think that, you know, again, you think you do IVF and although statistics aren't fabulous for IVF at my age, you still just think you're going to get pregnant, I think. I think you think it's science and you're just going to get pregnant. This is how it works. Um, obviously not how it works. Um, so we jumped into round two in um, December, November, December 2018. Um, exactly the same medications as the first round. Um, and we came out with seven eggs again. Um out of those seven, from memory, we had five fertilised, um, but only one of those made it to day five, and so we did a fresh transfer again on day five. Um, 
luckily for us that round, we managed to get pregnant. So we found out just before Christmas of 2018 that we were pregnant. Um, we, I think because for me, I'd already done two rounds of IVF and had had one miscarriage. I was really anxious from the second I found out I was pregnant um, and spent, um, you know, the entire time I was pregnant really anxious um, just that something would happen. Um, for me, um, I think I'd set, because we'd miscarried at six weeks with our first pregnancy, I, I, in my mind I'd set benchmarks to get through this. Um, so I think for me, my first benchmark was seven weeks. So got uh, got up to seven weeks and I started spotting, um, spotting and then bleeding um, in week seven. Um, and that actually continued right through until week 13. Um, so that, again, has heightened my anxiety further, I suppose. So I was hassling my specialist up to three times a week um, about how panicked I was and bless him, he was amazing and just brought me in for scans in his room three times a week to just show me that the baby still had a heartbeat, that there was no bleeding in the uterus and that everything was fine. Um, so I feel like um, I kind of just started to settle into that and, and acknowledge that this might just be how my pregnancy goes. Um, we did the harmony test at 10 weeks um, and got those results back just before 12 weeks. Um, and the results of that pregnancy indicated to us that there was a 99% chance of um, quite significant disabilities in our baby. Mm -hmm. um, that then um, obviously for us was devastating. We'd managed to actually get pregnant and then we had further issues. Um, so we, part of the problem for me with those tests was that Obviously, Harmony tests aren't necessarily, or they're not 100% accurate. Um, and the Harmony tests differed from our um, ultrasound. So there was no signs of disability on the ultrasound. Um, so we then were talked to, um, the specialist talked to us about doing um, the CVS testing, mm -hmm. um, because CVS testing is more accurate. Um, my husband and I made the decision that we couldn't um, adequately decide what we would do with that pregnancy one way or another until we had more definitive tests. Um, so we decided to move forward with the CBS testing, um, which quite frankly is horrendous for somebody that's already scared of needles. Mm -hmm. um, so we chose to have that done um, and um, the results of that came back as 100% positive um, for significant disabilities. Um, so at 13 weeks of pregnancy, Nick and I um, made the really hard decision um, to terminate our pregnancy at 13 weeks. Um, we, obviously that was devastating for us. It was just really, really hard. Um, so we, that was in February, so we terminated our pregnancy in February 2018. Uh, not February 2018, sorry, February 2019. Um, and I think for us, we'd already, because, um, you know, we'd done the harmony testing, we thought that was going to be fine. We had, um, just before those test results came back, made the decision to tell Nick's two boys that we were pregnant um, and both of our families that we were pregnant, um, which made the decision to terminate even harder because then we obviously then had to go back and tell everybody, including 
um, at the time, Nick's 12-year-old and 6-year-old, that we had lost our baby in around, um, would have been um, around June, July in 2019, um, we made the decision to stay with the same specialist um, and we um, went back for um, another round, so round three. Um, the specialist um, made the decision to still go with the same protocol, mm-hmm. um, which I, I started to question at that point because I'm like, you know, if I'm not getting... And nobody, I think, with my first specialist really talked to me too much about egg quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had... Um, I, I guess I just didn't really know much about it. So we decided to go back, but I think in my mind already I was starting to question why nothing had changed because I'm a bit of a researcher, so I like to look at, um, you know, what other people are doing. I look at blogs, so I look at, you know, all different things. So we went back. Um, I think I was, when I decided to go back, it was partly because the wait list for the new specialist I wanted to see was for so long, was so far away. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think I had to wait four or five months to be able to see my current specialist. Um, so we made the decision to move forward with another round with my previous specialist. Um, so that was round three. Um, that round, we got four eggs out of that. And again, we only had... We had made the decision this time round after what had happened with round two and our pregnancy that we would do PGS testing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we only had one egg, uh, one embryo make it to day five. Um, which meant that they that that clinic wouldn't PGS test when you only had one. Um, so we made the decision to do a fresh transfer um, and didn't get pregnant in that time, in that round. Um, so at this point, I um, in in the later in the July, I managed to um, get in and see my new fertility specialist. So I swapped everything over to the new specialist. Um, she, throughout my IVF journey, I've been seeing a fertility acupuncturist as well. And this new fertility specialist was recommended to me by my acupuncturist. Um, and I've kind of done a bit of research on her. And she definitely has um, quite a large following and is very popular. Um, and, you know, everything I'd read on her um, suggested to me it was probably a good move. Um, so met her in or around July 2019 um, and she reviewed my previous protocols, agreed that I needed to change something um, and she basically, she did it an antagonist cycle as well but just with a whole new barrage of medication compared to what I'd had for my previous three rounds. Um, so we, I went into round four with her in... Um, the September of 2019 Um, and I was really really surprised to have only gotten two eggs out of that round and neither of those made it through Mm fertilisation so I was pretty devastated Um, my specialist at that time then decided to change my protocol again and we did a flare cycle for round five Um, so that was around the end of October start of November 2019 um, and again, I was really surprised at that round to have only come out of that with one egg. Um, one egg, and that egg didn't fertilise. So my first two rounds with my new specialist were essentially failed cycles, um, which, again, for us is devastating. Um, we, I then went in and spoke with my specialist, 
Um, and she she's amazing, but she also does probably like lots of clinics do. She will be my fertility specialist, but may not necessarily be the one that does the egg retrieval. Mm-hmm. Um, so after my second round with her, I went in and spoke to her about the fact that I didn't understand why this was happening um, and that I was pretty concerned that, you know, in the lead up to those rounds, I was told that, you know, I had, I think for my fifth round, I was told that I had something like 16 follicles and how do I only get one egg out of 16 follicles? Um, so she reviewed those two cycles and my blood tests and my scans and just said to me that she suspected I may have been ovulating early and we made the decision that she would personally do my next egg retrieval. Mm-hmm. Um, so in December 2018, I did round six of IVF. Um, we went back to an antagonist cycle, which was the original cycle I did with her. Um, and this time around, we got nine eggs out. Mm-hmm. Um, nine of, uh, out of those nine eggs, we had five make it through fertilization, which is my best result so far. Um, and we had, um, again, we, I'd made the decision to do PGS testing. So um, two of those embryos made it to day six flask, um and for them to be able to um, do PGS testing. Um, only one of those eggs was able to be tested. So I, I had um, one frozen untested and the other one was sent off for testing. Um, that embryo then came back um, sort of mid-January as a high-level mosaic, um, which is not also not great. Um, so my specialist has said to me that, that at their clinic they don't transfer high-level mosaics. Um, so I went in and had another appointment with her in February to just work out, just to do a bit of a cycle review and a review of what's happened with my um, eggs um, or my embryos and sort of where to from here. Um, she just said to me that due to my age and my egg quality that um, that realistically my best bet would be to do another retrieval um, because the untested, although we absolutely can use my untested embryo, there's a high chance that that will also be abnormal um, and will either not implant or may put me in a position where I was with cycle two where I get the 10-week harmony testing and that that, um, that testing comes back with abnormalities. Um, so we made the decision that I would do another egg retrieval in um, March this year. Um, March this year, we were all booked in and ready to go and start. Um, and I probably should have mentioned at the start of this, but for me, um, for most of my cycles, I've had to access my superannuation to be able to pay for IVF. Um, so I'm lucky that my new fertility specialist um, is amazing and actually bulk build two of my rounds of IVF. Um, but for this next round in March, I needed to, to be able to have the money there to be able to do this. So um, I put in an application to access my husband's superannuation because I've exhausted my superannuation through IVF. Yep. Um, and we, um, uh, the ATO um, mucked ice, in my view, mucked me around with it. So we put in an application, um, would decline... Um, because um, mine and my husband's names were the wrong way around on the forms. Um, so they contacted me and said it's been declined, you'll have to resubmit 
all new forms, which meant I had to go back to the GP. Um, I had to get all of our forms completed again um, and resubmitted. Did that within days of their decision, resubmitted it. Um, and then because they took so long to reassess my psychiatrist report that you need to provide for um, your early access of superannuation was a week out of date and they declined it again. Oh, my God. Um, so I appealed that and got my superannuation approved, which meant that I had to put my cycle off until April. Yep. Um, I was due to start my... Um, my cycle for April on the 8th of April mm-hmm. um, and then the government made the announcement on the 2nd of April that also all IVF um, services were going to stop. You're joking. No. <laughs> oh, you nope. poor thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really hard. Um, you've had such a long journey to get to this point and just sort of you've overcome so many different things and so many challenges and just to have one more placed in your path again. Yeah. Absolutely. And I I think that, um, sorry, I'm getting upset now. It's okay. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Um, I think for us that, you know, like, um, even, you know, I, I think our last round when we managed to get, frozen embryos out of that one of those being tested um i think that nick and i were just so positive um that this would be the next round you know like um i think we're just just super um super happy that we'd managed to get two frozen we've never gotten any to freeze before um and you know we're just really positive that that would be the round so to then i guess have to um head into round seven um, was already really hard for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Um, and then I think on top of that, you know, obviously, then I, I just think even the process, even the fact that, that I that IVF is so expensive that I have to access my superannuation is just absurd to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that then on top of that, to make that process such a hard process. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, I think, I mean, and I, I don't know if you, I, I would assume that other people listening have had to access this for various stages for, for IVF as well. But, you know, the fact that you have to have multiple doctor's appointments, you have to have a psychiatrist appointment, you know, you've got to um, gather all your quotes and things. It's just such a time-consuming process on top of, like, the stress of IVF already, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tiffany and I have spoken about that before. And, you know, she said to me it's basically... Um, you know, a full-time or a part-time job, full-time job, whatever. It's another job on top of your life already. Absolutely. Trying to fall pregnant and trying to keep track of all your paperwork and, you know, with all that added stress and and, um, anxiety and, you know, of multiple rounds of IVF and then losses that you've you've gone through as well. Like that's just, yeah, that's just really difficult. So I can understand definitely why um you'd be feeling frustrated with this you know the the whole COVID-19 business and and sort of it being placed on hold so it's completely absolutely and you know uh, I think that the the COVID-19 stuff is I think for me it's just another another part of this journey that I can't control Mm mm-hmm you know, I think that there's nothing in 
in the whole IVF process that is within your control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's just another one of those things, you know. Yeah, you like to um, tell yourself that you have some level of control over the situation, but you kind of really don't have much at all. And, you know, like you can do things like go to acupuncture and change your diet and do all of that sort of stuff and take your medication and all of that. But at the end of the day, you still feel as though you're at the behest of your doctor and their schedule. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that because um, I I am, I think my personality is somebody that likes to be in control. So I think that that has um, made IVF for me slightly harder because there's, you know, there's not anything extra I can be doing in this. You know, I feel like I'm quite proactive about trying to do the things that I can do um, throughout this process. But, you know, like you said, other than eating well and exercising and doing acupuncture and taking the six million vitamins I need to take, Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. And, Um, yeah, there's all the, like you mentioned before, accessing your super, like we've spoken to a number of people on the podcast that have had to access the super for IVF and there's all the hidden costs. Like I was just talking to a lady the other day and she was saying, you know, the vitamins that she's taking can add up to 200 and, you know, between two and $300 a hit. And that's, yep. you know, once a month to every six weeks um, that she has to go and replenish her stock when she's doing a cycle. Um, and they've had to do multiple as well. Yep. Um, so it's just all the hidden costs and, you know, like you said, the setbacks and things like that. And this is just another one that is insurmountable because you can't there's no way around it i think well that's that's exactly right there's absolutely no way around it and mm-hmm. it's, it's i think it's you know realistically for me you know i i found out about um i found out that my clinic was stopping ivs services via social media yep um which i also think is hard you know like i think there's my clinic, although although it had been you know in the news and and on social media and things that that um, elective surgeries were winding down and that these were potentially things that were going to impact IVF um, services at some point. Um, my the clinic I'm with now are amazing in that they can do a lot of these things on site at their clinic rather than the hospital. So there was lots of talk from my clinic about. Um, that not not to be too stressed if you haven't started your cycle for egg retrieval yet because if need be, they can do those in the clinic under um, a local. It doesn't have to be at the hospital. There's ways around it, and that was kind of where they were going. Mm-hmm. They were still doing um, fresh and frozen transfers. So I think initially when all of this happened, I wasn't too panicked because I was like, okay, you know, even if they stop... Um, egg retrievals altogether at some point. I've still got an untested frozen there. I can just pop that in and see how it goes. Yeah. You know, it was like I'm going to have months to wait. Probably not going to hold up anything else because I'm going to have months to wait until I can do an egg retrieval anyway. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll just pop the untested in and see what happens. Um, so I think for me, I, I had seen then on social media that all IVF services had stopped unless you were in cycle. Yeah. So... Um, me and probably six million other patients, you know, as soon as 9am rolled around, I was in my clinic. <laughs> um, 
and was like, where to from here? And and that's when I was told, unfortunately, because you haven't started, you know, a cycle, whether that be a spin cycle or um, a frozen transfer cycle as yet, we can't do anything and everything's on hold. It's kind of a little bit scary, isn't it? The power of the government and that they Absolutely. can have, and that they can have such a hand in um, people going through fertility treatment, reproducing. Um, yet, uh, I don't know how to say this tactfully, but you know, it's kind of been mentioned multiple times about you know a baby boom and things like that in nine months time and you know because of the social distancing and isolation and things like that um it's just feels very unfair to put it simply it does because you know like uh you know the all those people that can get pregnant naturally good luck to them if they can have a baby in nine months time but there's a lot of women out there like me that that's just not going to happen for without Mm -hmm. the help of reproductive services yeah and just I mean, I'm sure, like, you would feel, you know, the the pressure of time as well, you know, like, each month that sort of rolls by, um, I've, like, from my, my personal perspective, I feel <clears throat> like time slips away and, you know, sort of when you make a decision to engage in a treatment, like fertility treatment, I mean, you sort of just want to get on with it um, yep. and, you know, to sort of so if you need to make more hard decisions down the line you have time to do that um and you know things like that whereas right now you don't and it's sort of like you're in this stasis where you just can't really do anything so yeah yeah that's right and and it is really hard you know like I think I think the other thing for my husband and I is that for us financially we had made the decision that this was likely to be our our last egg retrieval Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that we'd already prepared ourselves for that, prepared ourselves for the fact that this might, started to prepare ourselves for the fact that this might not go the way we want it to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got the one tested, one untested embryo. We were hoping we might get at least another one or two out of this round. Mm-hmm. Um, but we knew going into this seventh round that this was probably going to be our last. Yeah. Um, so I think the fact that you prepare yourself for that as well and uh, you know for me to come you know four or five days off being able to start that is just beyond devastating really. Mm -hmm. Can you just walk us through um, sort of how you were feeling and how you processed the news that you weren't able to go through with your cycle? Yeah um, look I think um, obviously the first thing I did was ring my clinic and then when they told me that I couldn't that I couldn't go ahead. I think I just spent that entire day crying, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, I think that for me, it's um, uh, look. So some of it, some of it is like I said, it's about the fact that you know I I am petrified of needles, so I really have to get myself in a mindset to to be able to get through my spin cycle. I you know so I think in the a couple of weeks lead up to doing the spin cycle, I really just. Um, Build, build it up in my mind, you know, that it'll be positive, that I'm positive, that I can do this, that it's only, you know, two weeks max of having to do this and that's it, it's, you know. So I think that um, it's a letdown in that sense. Um, it's, it's deflating, I suppose, to have yourself all, all ready to go and then be told suddenly that you can't. Um, I think that for me it, um, it, it sets off 
my anxiety as well. You know, I, I turned, my husband and I both turned 40 in March. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, realistically, I've been doing um, fertility treatments since I was 38 or just before I turned 38. So I don't know why 40 felt like a magic number for me that all of a sudden this was going to be much worse. But um, I think turning 40 in March and then being told um, in August, uh, not August, turning 40 in March and then finding out in April that I couldn't go ahead with my cycle just felt like a really big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, so I think that that's really set off huge amounts of anxiety for me about how long is this going to go on for, um, you know, are my egg reserves going to drop really quickly now, turn 40, what happens from here? Um, I think it's just a lot of um, unknown and uncertainty for me now. Yeah. Yeah, it's just um, really hard, hey, to know yeah, sort oh, of where and what to sort of do with yourself in the meantime while you're waiting and just that waiting is killer. It's like the two-week wait on steroids, really. Um, Absolutely. And, and, you know, like I think that for me, I, um, I again, I'm really proactive about, um, you know, what I can be doing. So once I sort of had a, a cry for a day or two over the fact I wasn't going to be able to do this, I, I'm very, uh, you know, even when we lost the baby, I'm very good at picking myself up and keeping on going. I, you know, like I think that it's really easy to wallow and get stuck in that space. And I know for me it's really easy to slip into that space. So I do whatever I can to make sure that I don't, mm-hmm. um, which means that, you know, two days later I'm on the phone to the clinic again just saying to them, right, what next? Yep. Give me something else to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are, are there other medications I can be taking? Is there something else I could be doing to improve my egg quality while I'm in this weight and tr- still trying naturally, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, what I have found so far, I've spoken to two different nurses at my clinic, and although my fertility specialist is great, I think that sometimes um, some of the other staff members are not fabulous. And I think that I get a little bit bitter about the fact sometimes that I've got a 20-something-year-old nurse telling me that I just need to be positive and exercise (laughs) and eat well and take your vitamins and we'll be back in a couple of months. Um, And I think I do get a bit bitter about, um, you know, I'm a bit like, you're 25, that's easy for you to say. I'm 40 and this is my round seven. (laughs) So I do get a bit bitter about that. Um, And I think because of that, I've now... Um, as of yesterday, just made the decision to bypass the nurses and I've booked a consult with my specialist for two weeks' time. Yeah. Because um, I just, for me, I just need to know 100% that there's nothing else I can be doing in this wait time mm-hmm. to improve my chances of trying naturally or to continue to improve my chances of getting good quality eggs and embryos when yeah. I can finally go back yeah. to an egg retrieval. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's probably a good way to sort of be looking at it. Hey, um, I think again, I think it's the only thing I can control right now. So yeah, it's, it's what I need to do. So that's where all your energy is going, which is, um, I think that's like a positive thing because it makes you feel like you're doing something, you're working towards something, and then once you are able to restart, you can sort of go, okay, well, I've tried absolutely everything I can for this next cycle. There's literally nothing else we could have done. So, yeah, that's right. Um, so basically, if you could just, you know, explain to the government why 
why is fertility treatment, why should it not be considered a non-essential service? What would you say? Um, I personally believe that um, that IVF should be considered an essential service. I think that um, I think that IVF is not something that you can put a blanket um, rule over. You know, I think that IVF is an individual thing. I think that people's circumstances are individual, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just don't think that you can stop something that that may be essential for some people but not necessarily essential right in this moment for others you know mm-hmm. um i think that that reasons for infertility vary across people and for me that indicates that the government decision on who can move forward with ivf and who can't should also be individual um i think that for some some women you know time is a huge factor age is a huge factor um, and I just believe that facility specialists should have the ability or some control around making decisions, um, you know, on a patient-to-patient basis, why IVF might not be able to wait for some of us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just think that, like I said, I just don't think you can make a blanket rule over something that's such a, um, a time-sensitive medical issue for women. Yeah, and I think I think I think for me that um, this decision, um, and and I'm sure lots of clinics are like this as well. But this decision was even harder for me because I was very well aware in the lead up to the decision by the government to stop all IVF services that um, the clinic I am currently with has the ability to perform egg retrievals in their clinic rather than in the hospital setting. Yeah. Um. So while I recognise that you know, that, that some of the reason all of these services are stopping is about the risk to medical professionals. Totally acknowledge that, and I think that's a tricky space for them. Um, you know, I, I had a clinic that was willing to do um, egg retrievals in their clinic rather than at the hospital, mm-hmm. um, and they also were doing all of their um, embryo transfers in clinic, not at the hospital. Um so for me, I actually think that if the um, individual facility specialists and the clinics are willing to do that and they can do that safely, why wouldn't they be allowed to continue to do that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Is there anything yeah. else you'd like to add there, Liv? Um, I don't think so. Like, like I said, you know, my I know that my facility specialist is willing to do that. I know that she was already doing... Um, sort of frozen transfers still in clinic and they were doing um, one patient in, one out. They were doing temperature checks. They, you know, they were doing all the precautionary stuff they needed to make sure that the staff were safe and that patients were safe. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think, like you said, it's, you know, to put a blanket rule across, you know, all of the reproductive services for me is just crazy. Yeah. Tiff, is there anything you wanted to add? No, that was really in-depth, covered everything. Is there anything you want to add about the whole coronavirus and all that jazz? I just, I know myself, like, every day is a struggle just because it's the unknown, the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, I think, IVF, you live with that daily anyway, and this has just added another dimension to that. Mm -hmm. But I suppose on top of that, you know, for me, my my work is now from home, so I'm very fortunate to still have a job at the moment. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but, you know, it's the same thing, you know, also work. It's not like you're getting out of the house and going to work and interacting yeah. with other people all the time either. So you're right, you're just stuck, I think, at home in your little, um, you know, coronavirus bubble. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where where all you've got is time, you know. And I think for me, knowing that I was coming into working from home for coronavirus, um, I also was a bit like, yes, this is going to be amazing. I'm not going to have to travel for work. I'm going to be so less stressed going into this spin cycle. Um, and But here we are. Yep. And then the rug was pulled out from underneath you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Liv. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. so much for joining us today we hope you enjoyed this episode if you like listening to the podcast and would like to share your story we will pop the link in the show notes be sure to hit subscribe so when we release new episodes it lands straight into your listen now if you could also leave us a review for the show that would be so appreciated no words are needed just stars If you're on the Apple app, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast page and tap to rate. This makes a massive difference to our show's visibility and helps us to get our show out and about to others experiencing fertility treatment. IVF Tales is an independent production made by Amy and I. Music is by Valet Gilushenko. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts.